Heavenly Father, we do look to your word as a great agent of sanctification in our lives. It is the means by which you lead us away from temptation, that you protect us and deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we trust in your power and your kingdom and your glory and ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 81 as we continue our walk through this book three of the Psalms. Psalm 81. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. To the choir master, according to the Giddith of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the, uh, when he went over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people would not listen, did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? So how many of you have ever heard someone say to you, close your eyes and open your mouth? I, I gather by, yes, you, and you probably have lots of experience to attest to that. It was a, it was a, a favorite phrase of my mother growing up, as I, you know, especially during perhaps holiday time, you know, Carter, come in the kitchen, you know, close your eyes and open your mouth and you'll get a big surprise. And, and uh, you learn after time to be a little weary, I, should, I suppose. But for the most part, you're very trusting, especially as a little kid, you know, they come in and of course you do what you're, mother tells you to do and and most of the time it would be something that you expected it would be something sweet some tasty treat and my mother was was big at this she loved at Christmas time to make uh, candies and cookies and all these special things so when it was around that time of year and I went into the kitchen and, and she said those words you know close your eyes and open your mouth I could pretty much count on getting some wondrous treat she liked to make uh, something called divinity, for those of you who have had that candy, or peanut brittle, which was my favorite thing, you know, peanut brittle. And every once in a while she'd make this homemade chocolate sauce and you know, we get to pour that on ice cream. And So all these great things we had to look forward to, we weren't quite sure which one it was going to be, but we knew it was going to be good and knew it was going to be sweet. In some 
interesting way, that's kind of what the Lord is telling Israel to do. You know, close your eyes and open your mouth and I will fill it. Trust me and I will fill it. Now, just like we sometimes get a little bit wary when someone says that to us in the kitchen today, I think there are moments when Israel was a little bit wary because every once in a while, something would be popped into your mouth that you didn't expect. And those are the moments that cause us to, be, to pause just a moment when they say, close your eyes and open your mouth. Wait a minute. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what this is going to be. Uh, I don't know if my daughter's ever learned to do that. She doesn't like to do that. But that's okay. There was one time at Christmas that my mother called us in to the kitchen and, of course, said that phrase. And earlier in the day, I had walked by the kitchen and seen, you know, that there was this, this this luscious, dark sauce cooking on the stove. And so when she called me in, I knew what to expect. So I, op- I you know, opened my mouth, closed my eyes, and in with this, this sauce that wasn't anything like chocolate sauce, like I was expecting. And I jerked back, and the rest of the spoon hit the floor. And uh, you know, I opened my eyes as if to say, what on earth did you just put in my mouth? And then, I, and she was very surprised. Why did you react like this? You love this stuff. I went, what do you mean I love this stuff? Well, it's, it's, it's my homemade barbecue sauce. You love this stuff. <laughs> and she's right. I do love her homemade barbecue sauce that she would make when they would make the briskets. But when you're expecting chocolate sauce, <laughs> barbecue sauce is a little bit of a surprise. So there are those things that are still good, but not expected. And so we jump back and react. You know, Israel was a lot like that. God's word to them in this passage is, open your mouth and I will fill it. That's what he wants them to know. Open your mouth and I will fill it. And they'd experienced some of that filling when they first came out of Egypt. He had brought them out of their slavery. He had rescued them. He had answered their cries for deliverance. And yet at the same time, as they wandered through the desert, not everything happened as they expected And so they become a bit standoffish, a bit hesitant, a bit leery, perhaps, of fully trusting what the Lord had to say. And this wasn't a surprise to God, after all. And he knew what Israel was going to be like. And so he instituted a way for them to remember. How will I help you to remember to trust me so that you will open your mouth and let me fill it? So he instituted some things. And that's what we're going to talk about. How do we possibly remember that God is good and he will fill our mouths if we would just but open them? And of course, that is somewhat metaphorical for not just your mouths, but for your your lives. Open your souls, open your minds, open your hearts, and I will fill it with such joy, such satisfaction that you will never want again. That's, that's of course, what he's after to teach them through this course. But But he instituted some things to help them to remember. And I think largely this is what this psalm is helping us to see. And I want to walk through those things. The first is is answering the question, how does he help us? How does he help us to remember that if we open our mouths for him, that he will fill them? And what is it specifically that we are to remember? And finally, why is it that we should remember? Why is it that he's able to do this? So that's what I want to walk through with you in this psalm. So first of all, how is it that God has enabled us or equipped us or provided for us to remember? 
And I want you to, to, to answer that question, I want you to reflect back for just a minute, just to the context of, what is, of where Israel is as you read about the story of this psalm. They've, they've been in bondage in Egypt, been enslaved by the Egyptians for some 400 plus years. They've been crying out for a deliverer. They were in a position that they desperately wanted to hear someone tell them, open your mouth and I will fill it. Because that's not what they experienced while they were in Egypt. They experienced this great degree of want. Now we could say a want for food, but we could say a want for some measure of satisfaction, some measure of contentment, some measure of joy, some measure of relief and freedom from what they were experiencing. They loved to hear the voice. They were eager to hear the voice, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So you can imagine as they came out of Egypt, they were very eager and very willing to listen to that voice. And they did. But as the story goes, they didn't always remain that way. They weren't always eager to let the Lord fill their mouths. Instead, they tried to find other places to fill their, their voids, to fill their emptiness, to fill their hunger. And so God instituted what we could say is a rhythm in their own life to build in things that would remind them that he is the one to fill their emptiness. And I want you to think about these, these rhythms that God has established. Where do we get that? If you look at verses 1 through 3, we can see when this psalm is meant to be read or meant to be sung. He says, Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. You think, what's he talking about? He's talking about a feast day. Now the feasts were something that God had instituted. When Israel had been led out of their slavery in Egypt and he brought them to the mountain, the mountain where he had told Moses previously uh, to bring them because he had made his presence known there. And while Moses was on the mountain, he gave them all these instructions. How is it that you are going to live with me in your midst? And one of the ways that he did was he instituted these rhythms, these rhythms of worship, these rhythms of remembrance, these rhythms of, of work and rest, these rhythms that go along with the season to mark his continued provision. And there were three primary main feasts throughout the year. There were several feasts, but there were three big ones, and that they were to come back together to remember this grand story of what God was doing in their lives. He built into the, a weekly rhythm by giving them, embedded within the Ten Commandments, the commandment to take six days to, of work and then the seventh day to rest. Why? Well, he first tells us because the Lord himself created the earth in six days and on the seventh day rested from his labor. And therefore you, who are made in my image, are to rest from your labor and to remember that I am your creator and ultimately as a result I am your owner, I am your provider. Now, that's the first instance of the giving of the Ten Commandments. In the second instance of, of, the, of the repetition of the giving of commandments, uh, commandments, he tells them, when you take this day of rest, you're to remember that I brought you out of Egypt. So there's two aspects, there's two big components that you are to stop from your work and remember. I am your creator and I am your redeemer. I am your rescuer. He has built that into the week. So that as they get into this rhythm, this routine, that they would have time to stop 
and remember that he is the God who says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Now, it's not the only thing. He also established these feasts, these annual feasts, that they are to stop from whatever they're doing, come back together and take a period of time, whether it might be stretched over a week or longer, in which they would do some particular activities of celebration between rest and celebration to remember because God is telling them, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So these rhythms are built in. Now you might ask, well, why do we need this? Well, because we are prone to perhaps forget. And as relationships, like any relationship goes on, you know if you don't pour into that relationship, eventually it's going to come back and bite you, as it were. I mean, the best analogy perhaps to think of it is a, as a husband and wife relationship. You know, husbands and wives, the problem isn't in their marriage that something big happens. The problem in their marriage is that they grow so comfortable with each other that they just stop investing in each other. They stop in taking the time to invest in that relationship because things feel like they're fine. And, and, and what happens is without realizing that that relationship is little by little growing cold. It's like the frog in the kettle except opposite. It's a relationship that has just grown cold. It's, gone, it's growing cold so slowly that they don't recognize it at any period of time. Until one day they find themselves more and more susceptible to the temptations around them that can destroy and wreak havoc on that relationship. So why marriage counselors encourage you know, couples to do things Take a day of the week, perhaps, that's just for you to invest in that relationship because you need these rhythms in your life to force you, while you may not be feeling it, to reinvest in this relationship. Because the Lord does desire us to experience a great sense of intimacy and contentment and satisfaction and joy simply because we are in a relationship with Him. And it's too easy to get satisfied with the little things of the world. I mean, the story of Israel is they came out of the nation, they came out of their slavery in Egypt, and God brought them to the mountain. I mean, at that point, they were hungry. They were hungry. And they were eager to eat whatever it was that God was filling them. But as He had filled them, as He had given them relief, it's as though their sense of desperation slowly started to subside. They weren't feeling that desperation anymore. This longing, this desperation to come into the presence of God starts to go down. And it's not as though they didn't need the Lord as much, but they didn't feel the need for the Lord as much. And as a result, it's easy to let that simply grow cold. So the, the how is it that we're to remember? Well, God has built in for us the rhythms of worship. This weekly Sabbath, this weekly time to come together as God's people and to reflect upon who he is and what we have with him, that we are to open our mouths wide and he is to fill it. Because it is very easy in our culture to forsake this rhythm that God has established for us and to find ourselves only very occasionally coming, perhaps, to worship. Now, it's not as though this is something that's going to make you righteous. It's not as though God is keeping tabs and you're earning more brownie points every time you go. It's not, it's not like that, which I know we tend to think of it in this very legalistic way. Well, I've done my good deed for the week. I've come to, to worship. No, it's something that we need because of the very nature of who we are. 
And we so easily forsake those simply because at the time we don't feel the desperation for God because things in our life are going well. So the how is the rhythms. The what are we to remember when we come together? Well, that's what this psalm is really all about. What are we to remember? That's the contents of the psalm. So look at it with me. I relieved, starting in, boy, needing glasses. Starting in verse 6, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Silah. Hear, my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So this is the contents of the psalm, what they are to remember. Now this is put in a song form. So as they came together, and by the way, this was to be sung at one of the specific feasts of the year. When they came together at this feast, they would sing this song. And it would retell the story of their departure, their, their rescue from the land of Egypt and their slavery. Now, the danger for us is, I know you guys hear that story a lot when you come into worship. And you think, well, that's just so distant. You know, that's ancient history. What possible connection does this have to me? And I think what we forget is when this song was, inst when this song was being sung, you know, if this indeed is a psalm of Asaph, when this psalm was written and when it was being sung, was centuries after the events had taken place. So when they sang it, it was also ancient history, by the way. But that didn't matter because they were connected to the people. They are the people. This is who they are. And I think we too forget this is also who we are. We too are connected to this people. This story that we're reading about these people, this is our story, even though it happened long, long time ago. It's, it is here so that we will remember what is our nature. Well, this is our nature. Look at the ancient Israelites. They were desperate for God to rescue them. He rescues them. He relieves their hunger. All of a sudden, they're, they're a little bit comfortable, and they find themselves going astray. They find themselves slipping away. It's as though by reading the contents of what happened to the ancient Israelites is this reminder to understand something about yourself. This is you too. You too, the minute you stop feeling desperate and feeling a bit comfortable, you settle into what's easy and what's simple. I mean, if you want to think about those who, those entrepreneurs versus those who, who, uh, who work for other people, there's those who, who earn a little bit of money, and as soon as they have a little bit of money, they're content, and they stop. There are those who just have this drive about them, and a little bit of money is not enough. And they go on until they finally find something greater. Now, I'm not saying be the entrepreneur in terms of seeking riches, but I am saying be like the entrepreneur in seeking something which is greater than the satisfactions that the world can offer, which is often, I think, what we just too easily settle for. You know, C.S. Lewis, what does he say? We, we're too easily satisfied with mud pies in the slums rather than the holiday at the sea. You know, that was the problem. We get the mud pies and you think, oh, well, this is enough. But it's not enough. It's just that we forget there is something far greater 
He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Not with the things of the world, but with me. With a relationship that you were always created to enjoy. That's what he's telling us. Don't be satisfied with the simple things. We were talking about this in our class this morning about the difference between uh, reading a book and watching the movie. Have you guys experienced the difference? And if you had your preference, you'd think, which one is better? And 99% of the time, the book is always better. There are those rare exceptions, I suppose. But the book is always so much richer. It engages your imagination. You know, it, it goes far deeper into the psyche and the minds and, and what's going on in the characters' lives than a movie screen could ever do. I, I remember I used to read just about, I don't know, every other year I'd reread the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, my favorite stories of all time. And then when the movies came out, I watched the movies. And they were very well done. But the problem is, ever since those movies came out, I found that I don't read the books anymore. It's like, it's formed this substitute. It was the easy, it's the lazy way out. It's easier to watch the story, to watch the movie, than it is to read the book. You can watch the, I guess those movies, it probably takes you, what, eight hours to watch. <laughs> but the books, it takes you, of course, over the, over the, you know, over the space of perhaps days or weeks, depending on how much time you dedicate. It takes a lot of time to read the books. It's a big investment. But the reward is, of course, far greater. And I think that's what, that's what we're learning to see here. That's what this song is all about. He says, look, look at what's happened to ancient Israel. As soon as they got comfortable, they were willing to pursue other easier avenues for some measure of contentment or some measure of filling. Look at your own nature. So how is it that God has equipped us to remember? Well, he's established rhythms to remind us. And what do we remember when we get together during those rhythms? Well, we remember our own nature, our own tendencies to go and fill ourselves with things that are less than God would have us experience. And the great why, I want to look at last. Why should we remember? Or what specific, why is it that this is so, something so good that we are to remember? And I think the key for this comes in the details that's being sung about and the, and the, uh, uh, the time in which this song was being sung. And I want to explore those with you just a little bit. Because as, if, as we dive a little bit deeper into the details of, of, being, of what's being sung, he mentions in verse 7 that you, as you well, before that, you came to the, uh, to the thunder on the mountain. It's a reference to when Israel had been brought to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, where God had met them and, and heard his voice in the form of this thunder. They, they felt this visible, real presence of God and power in their midst. They tasted freedom in their life for the first time. The whole idea was that I will bring them to myself. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they began to experience and to taste that. And as they left the mountain, they wandered for about three months. And God soon provided them with manna from heaven to eat. Literally, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And he had done that. 
because they were wandering through the wilderness. They were wandering through a very barren land. You know, as, as, as Ron and I got to go there a, a couple months ago, we saw that is a barren place. You guys were just there. I mean, there's nothing in that area. You can't even imagine wandering through there without something with you. And here we have how many hundreds of thousands of Israelites that are wandering through this desert land, and you're thinking, where on earth are they going to find food to feed this many people? And God miraculously causes these, these things to appear on the ground that he calls manna. They said, what is it? Well, that's what it was for the rest of it. What is it? What do we eat? We eat, what is it? We eat manna that God has provided for on a daily basis. But they also were thirsty, which you can imagine, being in the desert. And at one point, after leaving the mountain and wandering for, for about three months, experiencing the manna, they're, they're feeling their thirst, and they're looking around thinking, there is no place that God can possibly get water for us to drink. And so they bring a charge. They grumble against Moses. And that's what he says, this, what he calls the testing at the waters of Meribah. That's what they were doing with regard to Moses, with regard to God. And we find that, that encounter happened in Exodus chapter 17. I don't want to look at it briefly with you. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there. On the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is such a, a fascinating account of what's happened here. Here you have the people, they're grumbling against. Moses and against the Lord, as Moses rightly interprets, really, you're testing the Lord, he's saying. And the Hebrew term that's translated grumbling or quarreling is a, is a, is a strong term. Uh, Derek Kidner talks about it in terms of bringing a, a formal charge against the Lord or against Moses. That's kind of what they're doing. And so the scene is interesting. He says, pass, uh, pass on before the people. Uh, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, so there's this procession of the leadership, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. So what was the, what was the staff used for? I mean, it struck the Nile, and also in every way it was this representative aspect of, of God's authority on Moses which, with which he used to bring judgment down upon the gods of Egypt. This is what this staff represents. And as this leadership goes before the people and they stand there, and God says something interesting to Moses, he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So here the, Moses and the elders are lined up as if in this position of the judge. And the one who's on the rock being judged, it's not the people, it's God. He says, I will stand there. 
I will stand there on the rock. And then he tells Moses what to do. He says, take that staff and strike the rock. So it's this very visible picture that Moses, with this staff of judgment, is striking the place where God said he is standing. He is standing there. They are striking him. And the result is water comes out of the rock. Water comes out of the rock. Now we understand this scene a little bit better when we, when we hear the reference to, to Jesus Christ himself who's called the rock. He is the rock that was struck. Because we complain, because we grumble, because we go our own way, instead of us getting the staff of judgment, he stands on the rock, Calvary, and takes that strike. And as a result, he's able to provide us with water to drink. Now, Jesus had an interesting encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria when she's, when she's talking about the water there and the significance of the water, but being the well of Jacob. And he says, if you'd asked me for water, I would have given you living water. I would have given you the Holy Spirit from which you could drink making a reference to this whole idea because he was struck on the rock. The people have water to drink. Now we think of it as physical water and they experience it as a physical water, but there's, this, there's this clearly this connection that he's talking about more than just physical water. He's talking about something that will quench the thirst of the soul. That's my longing. That's what I want to fill you with. And as if that's not enough, the reference of the contents... The, the, the time in which they are to sing this song is interesting. He mentions, he mentions it's a feast day, and he mentions two times. He mentions the time of the new moon, and then he mentions the time of the full moon. Now, if you go back to read from Leviticus 23, there is one particular period in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar on which two feasts were being celebrated. The first was called the Feast of Trumpets, and it was to be taken place on the new moon, the first day of the month. The Feast of Trumpets was to remind them that God had brought them out of Egypt. He had conquered them. It was the trumpet of conquering, if you want to think of it that way. And the second one, he mentions the, new, the, the full moon, something that would have happened you know, two weeks later, was, was called the, uh, the Feast of Booths. A Feast of Booths in which the Israelites were to spend seven days living away from their house in a tent to remember that they wandered through the wilderness in tents for some 40 years. So there's this, there's this celebration of the feast that they are participating in when they left Egypt at the conquering of judgment of God and they wandered through the wilderness being led by God in booths to a place that he would bring them. And what's interesting is as he conquers the, uh, by executing judgment on the gods of Egypt and brings them to himself, he's brought them into close proximity to himself as he's leading them through the water. And how is he able, how is God able to bring a people who are guilty and sinful into his own presence? Well, he has to do something, something to make them holy, something to make them clean. And what's interesting is right sandwiched in the middle of this new moon and this full moon, these two feasts, is something called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. This song is being sung Remember, at these two feasts, 
in the middle of which they celebrated the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day, one day set apart for the year, when they would take two goats. One would be marked out for sacrificing, killing on behalf of the people because this was a picture of what they deserved as a result of the fact that they are unclean and unholy and they're living there with a holy God. And the second one wasn't to be killed, but the high priest was to put his hand on the head of the goat and confess all the sin of the people. And after that time, that goat would be led out into the wilderness as this, as this picture of God carrying away the guilt of his people away from him, out into the place where the wild things are, out into the place that represents no, where no life can exist, away from the presence of God. Isaiah talks about this, removing your sin as far as the east is from the west. So there's this picture. How is it that God can tell you to open your mouth wide and you will fill it, though you continually go astray time and time again? Because he's willing to stand on the rock and be struck that you might drink of this Holy Spirit. He's willing to have this picture of the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for your sin by crucifying his own son and in him, as he does, carrying away your sin as far as the east is from the west. So that there be nothing standing between you and the experience of God filling you, saying, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So what I want you to walk away with this morning, I want you to remember about your own nature, that you're easily prone to forget, easily prone to drift into a comfort that causes you to bypass investing in that relationship that God has paid such a dear price to establish. But to take note of the fact that he has instituted rhythms in your week and in your year so that you might remember these wondrous things that God has done on your behalf so that you might open wide your mouth and be filled. So don't neglect the rhythms of the Sabbath worship, the rhythms of the annual feast celebration, as it were the rhythms that God has established. And don't be satisfied with anything other than the water that God can provide. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you reveal our own nature to us in these psalms. That we don't have to hide the fact that we are continually going astray, continually tempted to walk according to the ways of the world, continually seeking to be satisfied from things that won't ultimately satisfy. That you remind us and know us so well that we tend to drink from cisterns that are broken instead of drinking from the well that is Christ. Father, we are thankful for the psalmist and the songs that you have given him to write down for us to remember. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us here this morning to commit ourselves to opening wide our mouths to you, that you might fill it. In Jesus' name.